I'm glad you're here worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ with us. My name is Jake Patton, and I'm one of the pastors here at Downtown Presbyterian Church. That was Adam Radcliffe, our pastoral intern, who is leading us in the liturgy. And uh, we're continuing our study this morning in the Old Testament law. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. And this morning we're on the Seventh Commandment. But before we get to that text, and before we read that, just a couple things uh, for housekeeping. Uh, the first is this. Um, Adam mentioned the upcoming election for officers uh, within the church. And I know we're in the, in the middle of a, a political season, and so the thought of voting or considering candidates, anything beyond what we're already doing is, is, is mind-bending. Like we're already saying, pass. I'm just, I'm just not interested. There's so much politics right now as it is. But if you would, hang with this. Um, because of the church plant, uh, a number of our deacons ha- have gone to serve uh, with Tim and with this new church plant. And so, having talked with deacons over the past season, they're in need of help, as is the session. And what this means is, is we're, we're taking nominations for the office of deacon and the office of elder. And the office of deacon is an office of service. And that ranges from taking care of the building, the physical plant that you see here, which is no small task. There's a lot of square feet in this building to take care of. But they also manage the budget. They control the purse strings. And those are the deacons. And so maybe you've seen some people around the church who are already taking care of, of, uh, of the facility, who are already serving in ways, and they're not deacons yet. They're a perfect candidate for a nomination. Similarly, the office of elder is one of leadership. And this is where I think Presbyterians get it right. Sometimes we don't, but here's where I think we did get it right. You don't want your leaders electing leaders. In the Presbyterian church, you, the body, the congregation, you elect your leaders. Think of it this way. If at any point in your life you ever need to be corrected by someone or shepherded by someone, you get to pick who those people are. That's your job, and that's where we need your help. So we're taking nominations this week, and we're taking nominations next week. If you have a couple names, uh, fill it out. The pirate box over here on my right, just behind the piano where we take up the offering, if you would stick those nomination forms in there, we'll collect those. If you fill one out this week and you think of a couple extra names this week, want to fill out more next week, that's just fine. Please do so. Uh, help us in that way. We greatly appreciate it. And the second thing is this, an entirely different subject. We encourage most of our members in the church to participate in community groups. And so because of the topic this week, we're looking at the seventh commandment, which deals with lust and adultery. Uh, we're much more comfortable talking about those topics when we're not in mixed company. And so sometimes we suggest, like in regroups and when we're meeting with our facilitators, hey, sometimes it's good to split guys and girls so you can go have private conversations. We're going to suggest that this week because of the topic. You don't have to do that. Just a suggestion. wanted to throw that out there. Um, with that in mind, with the housekeeping out of the way, we're going to jump right in with our text this morning. And much like last week, we're going to look at verse 14 of chapter 20. We're going to look at the Old Testament law. But like last week with murder, uh, we're going to look at Jesus' fuller explanation and application of what that law really means and how it should apply to us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So we're going to read both passages, Exodus chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 5. You'll find both of those printed for you in the bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not commit adultery. Matthew 5 verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, um, with this, uh, your word, would you put false ways far from us? And Spirit, would you graciously teach us your law? Would you give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts? For the law of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So for it, we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in preparation for this sermon this past week, I read probably what was one of the most gut-wrenching articles I've ever read. And it came out of the New York Times. It was an op-ed piece written by a woman named Wendy Plump. And this was several years ago, uh, 2010. And this is the name of the article, A Roomful of Yearning and Regret. And the first half of this article deals with a particular stage in her life where she was newly married, and she committed adultery, and she had an affair um, with someone who was not her husband. And so in the first part of this article, she's describing life during the affair and life after the affair. And I don't normally like to read long passages, but, but she is so vivid, and she does such, such a good job. I'm going to read this uh, word for word. This is how she describes life as the offender, as the one who is committing adultery. She says, this is no way for an adult to live. When you're with your lover, you'll be working on your alibi and feeling loathsome. When you're with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you're at home, everything in your life will look just a bit out of register. The furniture, the food in your refrigerator, your children, your dog. Because you've detached yourself from your normal point of reference. And now it belongs to a reality you've abandoned. Once the affair is out in the open, you'll strive mightily to justify yourself. You'll begin many sentences with the phrase, I never meant to dot, dot, dot. But one look at the hollow-eyed, defeated form of your spouse will remind you that such a claim is beside the point. The innocence has gone out of your union, and it will seem as if a bone has been broken and healed, but one that rain or cold weather can set to throbbing again tragic and, and vivid. Um, but what makes this article so unique is, is this. And as I've already mentioned, this is just the first half of the article. After she describes life as, as the offender, she kind of switches gears. And after this first marriage of hers failed again, and she would take credit for that. It was her mistake. Um, she was remarried. And it wasn't long uh, in the first few years of that marriage that her husband approached her and confessed to her that he had had an affair. And so she goes from being the offender now to being in this new marriage, the offended. And the second part of the article is, is again, life as the offended, life after being offended. Listen to what she says. She says, so now take the other side. You discover your cheating spouse as I once did. And what you experience is not far removed from post-traumatic stress. It's a form of shock. As your mind struggles to accommodate this wrenching reality, you won't be able to sleep or focus. Your fight-or-flight mechanism will go haywire, 
and you will become consumed with where your spouse is at any moment. Even if you see him in the pool with your children, you will lose your appetite. Stress will blow out your metabolism. You will torture yourself with details known and imagined. You'll fit together the mysteries of his daily patterns like a wicked puzzle. Every absence or unexplained late night or new habit or sudden urge to join a gym, for instance, will suddenly make horrible sense. You will wonder why you were so stupid. It's devastating. The word tragic comes to mind. And when we think about this woman and, and the instincts and the appetites that destroyed her first marriage, and when we think about the instincts and the appetites um, and her husband that destroyed her second marriage, what's even more tragic, what's even more discouraging is those same instincts and those same appetites are in you and me. We're born with it. We show up with it. What is that instinct and what is that appetite? It's this, is that we are reckless in our pursuit of pleasure. Absolutely reckless. We show up this way. We're looking out for number one. We want our pleasure, our joy, and we really don't care about the collateral damage. And sometimes it may be at different points in our life, we'll have the wherewithal to look up and look behind us and see the, the dead relationships the people we've overlooked and the people we've harmed like this woman in the article. But like her, we're reckless in our pursuit of pleasure. And our pleasure can be a number of different things. It can be money. It can be success. It can be things or objects. But we're, we're looking at pleasure this morning in terms of physical pleasure. That's what our passage is talking about. That's what this article illustrates, this pursuit of physical pleasure through lust and through adultery, when we pursue this, we often do it recklessly. We harm ourselves. We harm our families. We harm our churches. The collateral damage is extensive. You know, we don't say this often as the church uh, about country music, but it kind of got it right on this one. When country music writes and sings that, hey, we're looking for love in all the wrong places, we're looking for love in all the wrong faces, Biblical writers say almost the exact same thing. It's not wrong to want pleasure. It's not wrong to seek after pleasure. It's just we're doing it in the wrong places. And what this passage is meant to show us this morning is, that, again, pleasure and ecstasy, they are part of our worldview. But you won't find it in things. You won't find it in objects. You're not going to find it in lust or in adultery. You're meant to find it in God himself. He is to be your primary and your supreme pleasure. So, three things this morning I want to look at. And if you're keeping notes, these are my points. I want to look at the hammer, the mirror, and the help. The hammer, the mirror, and the help. Well, what do I mean by hammer? Well, imagine for a moment, what does a hammer do to glass? It shatters it. It destroys it into thousands of unusable pieces, right? And one of the uses of the law, God's law, is, is, is just that. See, we kind of, we kind of are, are formed with this appetite, this desire to say, look, God, here's all the good things I've done. Here's all my righteousness. And that's got to count for something. You owe me a good marriage. You owe me a good life. You owe me a healthy child, and what the law is meant to do, it's meant to walk up to that glass of self-righteousness that you and I have and just go, tink, and shatter it to a million pieces. 
And what we'll find is that none of us in this room, none of us have a leg to stand on as this command is concerned. A couple weeks ago when we were looking at uh, the command to honor your father and mother, we explained it in, in these terms as the basement and the ceiling. If you were here, you may remember those words. One commentator helps us with, with this image. We're supposed to look at the Old Testament law as the basement. This is where we start. This is where we begin with the application. This is where we begin with what we're supposed to do. Um, but Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament. He's the king of this new kingdom. His kingdom has arrived. And what he has the privilege and the right to do is say, here's what this law really means. And here's the full extent. Here's the ceiling. Here's as far as you need to take this law. Here and no further. Here and no less. This is what this law means. So let's look at those two things this morning. Let's look at the basement. What does it mean according to Exodus chapter 20? But then what does it mean according to Matthew chapter 5? The first is the basement. Look at again back at verse 14, chapter 20 of Exodus. Very simply stated, you shall not commit adultery. Well, what is adultery? When you go back to Genesis 1 and you look at the original creation of marriage, which is given to us by God. That's not something that we were creative and something that we came up with. No, that, that's what God made. God made marriage. And he says, here's how marriage should look. A man is going to leave his mother and his father, and this man is going to hold fast to his wife. And this man and this woman shall become what? One flesh. And so if you're thinking about it this in mathematical terms, think about it this way. One plus one in marriage equals one. One man plus one woman equals one flesh. That is God's design. We're supposed to embody this oneness financially, emotionally, spiritually. And this marriage is supposed to be consummated by physically becoming one together. That is his design and that is his plan. And what adultery is, is the desire. It's the act of becoming one flesh with someone who is not your spouse. You have committed, you have made vows to this person that you are going to be one, you're going to act like one before God and before this company of people and is to break that vow and say, I'm going to go be one flesh with somebody else. That's adultery and that's where we're supposed to start and that's what the scriptures prohibit. And, and think about this too. This, this command made God's top ten. And if it made number seven, what does that tell you about us? If it made the top ten, then that must mean for us, this, this has got to be a pretty big problem. This is not a tertiary issue. This is, this is humanity's problem. We need to keep our eye on this one. Jesus shows up in the New Testament, and in Matthew chapter 5, he gives us the fuller application. He shows us the ceiling, how far this law actually goes in our application. Look at me again at verse 28 in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to his language. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you notice the shift and the change? In the Old Testament, adultery was an act you did with your body. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, Okay, hey, in the quietness of your own heart, in the silence of your own imagination, if you even think about being physically intimate with someone or emotionally intimate, spiritually intimate with someone who is not your spouse, you've committed adultery in your heart. 
One of my favorite theologians says this about sin. The, the, the seat of sin is in the heart. It's not in the hands. It's not in the actions. It's here. It's in the heart. This is where lust and adultery comes from, from our desires, from what's on our insides. This is where we break the law. And that's what Jesus gets at as the king in this new kingdom. It's much bigger uh, than we think. What that means then for us as husbands, if, if our intimate life is not going well, but that other couple seems to be very happy, and you wonder, man, I wonder what my intimate life might look like if she was my wife. I wonder how happy I would be if we had a marriage bed together. And what Jesus says is, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Wives, if you're at home you're feeling dismissed, disrespected, not listened to, and then you bump into that couple and they're happy, she's respected by him, she's listened to by him, and you wonder, gosh, that must be great to be his wife. I wonder what it would look like if I was his wife, how happy I would be. I wonder. If you've ever thought that, what Jesus says here in this law is that you have committed adultery with him in your heart. Youth. Young folks in the room, what Jesus is getting at here is this. You don't have to be an adult, and you don't have to be married to commit adultery. If you've ever thought about being physically intimate with one of your classmates, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Now, I used to be in youth and family ministries and parents and youth. Maybe you've heard this question before. It's asked a lot. The question is this is, okay, how far is too far, Right? Maybe we've asked that question, or maybe we've been asked that question. You see, what Jesus does with that question, he kind of just flips it on its head. If you've even thought about someone, being physically intimate with someone who is not your husband or not your wife, you've gone too far. It starts in the heart, and it starts on the inside. And if you've even thought about it, you're guilty. If you've imagined it or dreamed it, you've already gone too far. So, if the law is a hammer, and if it breaks and shatters our self-righteousness, what it tells us this morning is this, is that nobody in here, none of us have a leg to stand on. Maybe we came in assuming this morning that, you know, I think I've got this one pretty much nailed. Well, how about your insides? You ever thought about someone who's not your spouse? We're all guilty. We're all culpable. Second point is this, the mirror. Not only is the law meant to be a hammer and to destroy our self-righteousness, and that's a good thing. That's actually a grace of God, but it's also a mirror. And what does a mirror do for you and for me, those who stand in front of it? It shows you as you truly are, right? If it's a good mirror, it will show you your image as you truly are. It won't lie to you. And that's what the law is supposed to do to us. Not only does it show us who we are, but it shows us why we're doing what we're doing. It moves beyond the physical, moves beyond the will, and it it exposes our heart, what's on the inside. Jesus gets at this here at the end of verse 28, right? He says, where does this adultery take place? It takes place in the heart. So what's going on inside of us when we're recklessly pursuing uh, lust and adultery? Psychology Today had an article recently where they polled people who were in adulterous affairs or people who had had adulterous affairs. And the question was this. This is all they wanted to know. Why did you do it? Or why are you doing it? 
And so after they polled everybody and collected the answers, they found eight answers, eight reasons why people pursue adulterous affairs. And what was interesting to me is that only two of them dealt with physical. The joy, the satisfaction, the climax that comes from an affair. I would have expected more. But it was only two of them. You know what the other six were? They were emotional, relational, motives on our insides, social needs, need for attention, need for approval, need for comfort. It wasn't about the physical. It was about inside stuff. It was about our heart. And if that's true, then that tells us something about ourselves. We've got to take a hard look on the inside. I want to just play with two. Uh, we, we could, you know, we could have a long list here, but let me just take two. Let's take approval. All of us show up with a great need for approval, but for some of us, we didn't get much of it from our family. We didn't get much of it from our friends. We didn't get much of it from our bosses and overseers. So as adults, we feel like approval sucks. That's a term. Like we just can't get enough approval. But we found another person that if we give our body to, and if we hand ourselves and our lust over to, they give us approval because of that. And so what do we do? We kind of enter into this secret economy of, if, if, if I give myself physically to this person, this other person approves of me. And so I'm here for myself. I'm here for my approval. And I'll give you whatever you want, just so long as at the end of this, I still feel approved of. And what's the problem with that? That person was never meant to answer that question in your soul, your approval. They can reinforce it, but they can't answer it fully. Some relationships don't last if they're built on lust and approval. Take comfort. Let's do this one next. Um, One writer said this week as I was reading, he said, you know, human beings can't take too much reality. We're not built for it. And what, what is he getting at? This world is broken. Look at the wars. Look at politics. Look at the church. Look at our own souls. Everything is a wreck. There's some beauty, but everything is a wreck, right? And the longer you live, the more you see that. And the greater your appetite grows for comfort, for reassurance. And what some people do with this great need, this emotional need in their heart, this pain they have on the inside, they use sex and lust as a coping mechanism. I'm going to pursue feeling good on the outside, and hopefully that's going to mask the pain and the suffering that I'm feeling on the inside. But what's the problem with that? The external pleasure of lust and sex are short-lived. That's a short shelf life. It covers the sin, it covers the sorrow and the sadness for a moment, but then that sorrow and that sadness is still there. And so what do we do if we need comfort? What do we do if we need approval? Illustration from the Bible. Quickly here, Genesis chapter 39, we read of a man named Joseph. And his brothers were jealous of him, so what did they do? They sold him into Egyptian slavery. Great family values. Good job, big brothers. And the Lord is with him. And the Lord protects him and preserves them and blesses all the work that he does. And he's working for a man named Potiphar, who's a higher up in, in Pharaoh's economy. And Potiphar notices that everything that this guy, Joseph, touches, it turns to gold. So he does the wise thing, and he says, I'm going to put you in charge of my whole house. Run it. And what happens? 
Potiphar is blessed through Joseph because Joseph is blessed by God. And then one day, Potiphar's wife approaches him and solicits Joseph for sex. She says, lie with me. And Joseph says, no. Now, if you or I were in a situation similar to this and we were solicited with a request like Potiphar's wife, we might say no, but it might be for the reason like, hey, there are so many STDs out there. Like, I don't know where you've been, and that scares me. So no, on those grounds. We might say, for fear of an unwanted pregnancy, not going to do it. I don't know what to do with that, but I'm going to say no for those reasons. Others might say, hey, that's against corporate policy. Like, I don't want to lose my job. So no, not going to do it. You remember what Joseph's reason was? You remember what he said? He said, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? What's going on in the heart? Joseph's human, just like you and me. We have all needs for approval. We have needs for comfort, needs for attention, affection, care, respect. But he has gotten that from where? The primary source of where our pleasure is supposed to come from. It comes from God. And if you're full, and if if your pleasure is in God, and your approval is in him, and your comfort is in him, When requests come at you like Potiphar's wife, you can say, no, not for all those other reasons, but because I'm I'm full in God. And why would I do such a wicked thing? And why would I sin against God and sin against you? No. I'm full. Think about it this way. It's a good thing to pray, and it's a good thing to ask God, please help me not to lust. It might be a better thing to say this to God. Father, I have this insatiable desire for approval. I feel empty. I feel like nobody's in my corner. Help? And what does the gospel say about approval? Does the gospel say anything about approval? Amen. Yes, it does. What does he say? Remember what happens in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is about to begin his public ministry? God the Father shows up. And at Jesus' baptism, he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus does anything, the Father's proud. The Father approves. He calls him beloved Son. And we read that and we go, Man, I wish somebody would say that to me. Well, guess what? If Christ takes your sin upon himself, and if he gives you all of his goodness and all of his righteousness, again, not that you earned, but what he earned, if he gives that to you, You know what that makes him? That makes him your brother. And if you're brothers, that makes his father your father. And if his father is your father, that means you get the blessings that he got. So in the gospel, if you are united with Jesus Christ, those words are your words as well of approval. In the father's eyes, you are justified. You are a beloved son, a beloved daughter in whom he is already well pleased. He has answered that question for you in the gospel. And all you need to do is believe. Well, what about comfort? This world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yep, he knows that. He's experienced that. He's felt that acutely, right? Jesus Christ is the one who took on flesh, and he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he came here. He was tempted, never failed, but was tempted 
was spit upon, was mocked. He saw a broken side of this world that you and I will never see. And you know what he offers you and me? He says, I'll sit across the table from you. Let's cry about that. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. And then you know what he'll do? He'll say, remember the ending. As bad as it is, as bad as it feels right now, don't forget, bad, bad guys are going to lose. Good guys are going to win. We know how the story ends. Be comforted in these promises. If you're comforted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you find your approval in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not going to go try to find it in lust and adultery. Why? Because you are full. Joseph was full. We can be full. God can change our insides. The greatest way to kill a pleasure, a pursuit, a reckless pursuit of, of, of happiness and joy is to kill it with a superior pleasure, the superior pleasure, and that is God himself. That's his job. That's what he wants to do for you and for me, is be our primary pleasure. We've already kind of hinted at this. What, what's the help? The law has destroyed us like a hammer. It's exposed us like a mirror. What do we do? Well, the first thing we should do actively is, is pray. If the Holy Spirit has endless power, He's the one who created this world by the word of His power. He is the one that raised Jesus Christ from the dead by the word of His power. He is the one that somehow got the preexistent Jesus in the womb of Mary. He gets credit for that. Don't you think that He can change your appetites? He can change your instincts. He can change your insides. Like, that's child's play. Of course he can. If he can raise the dead, he can change your insides. He can do that for you. So we pray. We ask him. But there's also some, some things reactively that we need to do as well and at the same time. Uh, and before I read verses 29 and 30, put your finger there. Um, adults, let's go back to high school English. And if you haven't had high school English yet, this is free of charge. And we learned a term in high school English called hyperbole. And in layman's terms, hyperbole is a tool that writers or speakers used to um, really solidify and cement an idea in your head. It's an exaggeration so that you won't forget and that you'll remember and that you'll take the message that it's meant to communicate home. Well, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus is about to engage in hyperbole. He's not being literal. He's being figurative. And thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. And you'll see why. Verse 29. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Yikes. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, if we're praying and if we're asking the Spirit with endless power to change us on our insides, there's some things on the outside that we need to be doing as well. This hyperbole assumes action, cutting, tearing away, throwing away, like we're supposed to be doing something, right? And our grandparents' generation used to say this, about the magazine Playboy, right? And maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've heard it from one of your family members. Like, I, I look at that magazine for the articles, not for the pictures. And our insides were going like, right. No, you don't. We all know why we're looking at, 
at that magazine. But, you know, magazines are, are a thing of the past now. And for us, we have, you know, all, all sorts of opportunities to do the exact same thing. And just to put it simply, what this may mean for us, uh, for some of us this morning, what it might look like for us to gouge out our eye or cut off our hand is to unsubscribe. And you might say, well, no, 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 I, I love watching that series. Uh, I, I, love that, I, I love that movie channel because of the stories. I'm there for the stories. But really, on our insides, would we enjoy them as much if they didn't have all the sex and lust in it? If we're honest, we'd say, nope. That's kind of why we like it. So an appropriate application for some of us this morning might just be simply this, unsubscribe. Cancel. That's cutting off your hand, and that's gouging out your eye. The second assumption uh, is this from this passage. Um, It kind of assumes discomfort, pain, inconvenience, right? If you're cutting off your hand or you're gouging out your eye, that is painful, right? And especially if you're doing it to yourself, like self-mutilation, that sounds awful, and if we're, we're wrestling and if we're going toe-to-toe with our, our lusts and our reckless pursuit of pleasure, and if we find ourselves uncomfortable and pain, feeling like we're in, in spiritual withdrawal, if it's inconvenient, that might mean we're doing it right. So be encouraged. If it's hard, if it's painful, if it's inconvenient to you and to others, you're doing it right. You're on the right path. I want to close with this. Um, I heard a pastor tell a story about a conference that he had gone to. And it was, it was a large conference on sexual purity, room bigger than this. And he went not as a speaker, but as a listener, as a participant. And so he's out in the crowd. And the keynote speaker gets up to give his lecture, to give his speech. And at the introduction... He walks up on stage, he walks to the podium, and he's holding a long stem rose. And it's magnificent. It's the best of the bunch, right? Freshly cut, pristine condition. And he says, you know, before I begin my lecture, um, we're going to pass this rose around the room. And so what he does is he goes to the first person on the first row, and he hands the rose to this person. He says, now pass it down the row. Let everybody put their hands on it and just pass it down the row. When it gets to the end of the row... Pass it to the person behind you. And they're going to pass it down their row. And so forth. And so on. And while you're passing the rows, I'm going to give my lecture. And at the end of the lecture, I have a couple points that I want to make while using the rose. Okay? So the rose is being passed. He's giving his lecture. He ends and he says, okay, now where is the rose? And somewhere near the back of the room, somebody holds it up and he says, pass it up. And as you can imagine, after it has been passed from hand to hand, person to person, this rose is in bad shape. Now, it's lost most of its petals. Its leaves are gone. It had a straight stem. Now it's bent, broken in a couple spots. It's in bad shape. And here were his two conclusions. And again, this is a pastor telling his story. The lecturer's conclusion was this. First one, when we hand ourselves over recklessly to our own pursuit of pleasure, this is what we're doing to ourselves. We're making ourselves ugly. And there's a part of that that I agree with. Like on our insides, if we're looking at these earthly pleasures to replace the pleasure that we're supposed to find in God, that is spiritual ugliness on our insides. I I would agree with that to to a degree. 
And here's how he ended. Here's how he closed. He said, he asked, asked this question, and who would want a rose like this? Meaning what? If you've been reckless in your pursuit of lust and pleasure, and you have given yourself to people who are not your spouse, what he was saying is, is you're ugly, and nobody's going to want you. And the pastor who was at this conference, he looks back on this moment. He looks back on the lecturer's question, and he says, I wish, and with great regret, he said, I wish I'd had the courage to say an answer to his last question. Jesus would. Jesus does. He loves ugly people. And as he's telling the story with tears in his eyes, he says, I regret not saying that, but we're going to say it this morning. You've made a wreck of your life on your outsides and on your insides. And you feel ugly. And you feel like nobody wants you. Guess what? That couldn't be more untrue. God wants to wash you whiter than snow. God wants to forgive your sin. And he wants to give you his perfect righteousness. God wants you. He'll take you. Lovingly, graciously, mercifully, he'll take you. Again, in a room this size, when we talk about lust and adultery, some of us in here are in the middle of, of not just affairs in the heart, in our minds, and our imaginations, but full-blown affairs. We're giving ourselves physically to people who are not our spouses. And that's not the way it should be. That's prohibited in the Scriptures. He says we're supposed to find our pleasure, our primary pleasure in Him and not in other ways. And if that's you this morning, God says the same thing to you. Not only can He forgive you, but He can restore your marriage. I have seen it in this very church. Affairs tear families apart only then to be restored by the power of God alone. I have no words but just that. God's power alone restored this husband and this wife back together. You can be restored. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in guilt. And you don't have to live leapfrogging from, from lust to lust to lust. You can be full in God. Last thing is this. Jesus is described, he's given the name bridegroom in the New Testament. And what that means is that if he's the bridegroom, there must be a bride. And if you've been in the church for a while, you know that the bride is who? It's not you, it's not me, but it's the church, universal, invisible, past, present, and future. And we, as a church, like individuals, we can recklessly pursue other gods, other loves, other idols. We've talked about those. And so we should ask ourselves, what's the future of this relationship? Because if it's in our hands, we're going to mess this up. And we already have. What the scriptures tell us about this bridegroom, Jesus, is that he washes his church. He forgives his church. When the Father looks at his church, he sees someone, a body that is perfect. Why? Because they've earned it? No. It's because they've received this perfect righteousness from Christ. Our groom, the groom of the church, died so that we might stay together forever. That's our bridegroom. 
And that's what he does for us. And, and consider this, we have this law, Paul says in Romans, we have this law that's written on our hearts, on our insides we know. We're fudging on the outside, but on the inside we know it's wrong. We know what we're doing is wrong. Not only does Jesus forgive us and restore us in our earthly relationships, but he is preparing, he's creating a place where even our insides, our deepest desires, our deepest yearnings, our most fundamental appetites are going to be purified. Meaning what? That when we get to where we're going, when we get to the place that he's creating, we're not going to want the wrong things anymore. Always and forever, we're going to want the right things. He's going to restore even that, our appetites, our instincts. He will be our primary affection. He will be our supreme love, our source of joy, and we won't want it from anywhere else. But he says, in the meantime, you've got to hang tough. Trust me. You'll find no joy, no pleasure outside of marriage. You won't. But you will find my pleasure in what I've created this intimacy, this closeness, this oneness that can be experienced through a husband and a wife. May the Lord bless you, and may he bless me to that end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have made a mess of things. And we could talk about all the ways in which we have broken your law, but perhaps what grieves us the most is that we have been looking for some of the answers to our deepest and darkest needs in everywhere and in every place but you. Um, would you tap the brakes? And would you throw up the emergency brake handle? And would you give us the gift of the true turn? We know that you're loving. We know that you approve of us. We know that you sit across the table and will comfort us. Help us to pray and help us to believe on our very insides. Fill us so that we don't turn to another idol or another thing, another vice. Change us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.